I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Coming up in today's episode, Roshin will be chatting to a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church, Megan Phelps Roper. Megan has just released a new memoir which details her early life within the church, why her family chose to hate everyone around them, and how ultimately she made the tough decision to leave. But first, did you know that since Sunday, the 10th of November this year, Irish women have been working for free? because of the gender pay gap. This is according to the charity Dress for Success, who recently hosted a workplace equality conference in Dublin to address the 13.9% gender pay gap which exists in Ireland. One of the speakers at this conference, and someone we can learn a lot from, is Tatiana Latinovic, who is the chair of the Icelandic Women's Rights Association. Iceland has been described as a gender equality paradise and has topped the World Economic Forum's report on gender equality for the last nine years. So how do they do it and how should Ireland follow suit? Let's find out. Tatiana, you're in Dublin for a conference. Who are you trying to inspire here? Uh, My Irish sisters. (laughs) (laughs) And And the whole society, actually, because uh, gender equality is not... uh, just the issue of us sisters. It should be of, of everybody here. So, uh, But the, the majority of, of, of guests at the conference were women. I could see a few men there, and I think this is something that we need to work on. Absolutely. And what is the conference about? It's, uh, it's about um, gender equality in the workplace. What fascinates us, I suppose, Tatiana, Iceland is, is sort of a, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a totem for feminism around the world. And you, um, you became the Women's Rights Association, which was founded in 1907, yes. which is extraordinary. That the organisation was founded then? Yes. yes. And it's still working. And it's like 112 years. It's been active 112 years. It was founded in 1907, as you say, by... Uh, a lady called Briet Bjarnhedinsdottir. Icelandic names are very difficult, I know. Uh, 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 she actually got encouragement from suffragettes, I guess from England or I don't know, from where to fight for uh, women's right to vote. So that was their mandate. Uh, and they got the right to vote in 1915. Not all women. It was women with property, older than 40 and so on. 20, uh, 1920, everybody got right to vote. And so their mandate has always been on on um, equal uh, access to education, equality, political uh, appointments in the workplace. And this still go, uh, continues with us. Uh, in recent years, especially, uh, we have been... Uh, advocating for increasing uh, in representation of women in in uh, in, jo- in business in in pol- politics in judicial system and, and police and so on uh, combating uh, 
sexual uh, harassment and violence and and uh, uh, lobbying that that the gender education is made mandatory in schools because we think that school is a great uh, sort of tool for equality because everybody goes to school so kids should be just educated about that and um, uh, more recently especially since I took over I'm of foreign origin uh, uh, we, we are exploring and advocating for the intersectionality so involving uh, realizing that there, yes there, there are genders but there are also other factors that uh, affect how people experience the society and how society treats them like the origin, race um, sexual orientation uh, disability and so on because uh, because I think that uh, that you know unless everybody can profit from equality or or, or 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 tools or systems or legislation that we have on equality, unless everybody in a society can profit from it, then we haven't reached really the equality. Now you know that of which you speak because you arrived in Iceland as an immigrant, mm-hmm. um, and did you more or less immediately become involved in the Women's Rights Association? Or did you see injustice around you? Did you feel it yourself? Did you feel there was something terribly wrong? We see everything that's right about Isaac. Yeah, yeah. What was, what was there that made you want I, to... I come from a long line of uh, female activists. <laughs> so when I came to Iceland, I moved in 94. Where did you move from? Uh, my uh, former Yugoslavia. So I'm from Croatia. I'm Serb. So, so um, I married... My husband is Icelandic. That's why... Most of people moved to Iceland at that time. Um, you know, I learned the language and I, and I started uh, working, uh, working, and um, was involved in immigrant issues. So, uh, so 2003, uh, I founded with a few of my friends uh, Association of Foreign Women in Iceland called Women in Iceland because we realized that that voice was missing, and at that time there was. Uh, Actually, more women immigrants in Iceland than men. It looks to us like you've done everything. What What is happening in Iceland now? We're still talking about gender equality and the gender pay gap. What What is left to be done? I think the. I think, for me, from my perspective, it's the intersectionality. It's just making sure that everybody profits from equality and 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 realizing that, not making policies and plans. That are only that will only benefit a small group of women or men. So, so I, I think that that and this is what we are working very heavily uh, towards. We had had the Me Too movement, which was a great catalyst in Iceland, where we saw that that there was a there was discrimination, there was harassment, there was violence in all spheres of life and 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 all walks of life and professions and and so on so i think eradicating that it's a big issue actually maybe you know we think it's a big issue because you know one woman is too much if she suffers but but there are there are you know pe- women that suffer from that and just you know uh, i think that equality and reaching quality is a moving target it it will always change it, it, because the societies change, so we need to make sure that you know 
the legislation and and the discourse also changes mm-hmm. as societies change. And there will so always be that plenty of work of there, a backlash yeah. and that sort of we thing. We thought, yeah, I think yeah. that the the Briet, the one that founded the organization, uh, and in our statute it says that uh, the uh, organization will cease to exist when the equality has been reached. And we are, you know, I don't think that we will cease to exist. <laughs> we are still working towards it. Yeah. Now the gender pay gap has become a big issue. Uh, how is that working out for you? What have you done about that? So we have, uh, and this was actually part of my uh, talk today, so we, we, we have a lot of, um, there has been a lot of very interesting and, and progressive uh, legislation in Iceland. And this is where we are leading in the world, I think, that that, that we have uh, introduced various tools to help so that even the the Icelandic labor market, and these would be like gender quotas in the com- in in, uh, in management, uh, gender action plans, the equal pay, uh, pay standard, and the equal pay certification, and also uh, equally shared parental leave. And how has this been enforced? Because we can talk about theory all day long mm-hmm. and the ideal, but how has it been enforced? Well, that's it, you've, you've, you know. That's been uh, legislation. We have had the legislation that everybody should be paid equally since 1961. And <laughs> how's that going for us? 1961. You know, yeah, 61. And I think that the um, gender pay gap in Iceland today is still 15.3%. Uh, by the total earnings gap is between men and women is much higher. It's around 26%. So this means that the companies, the pe- employers in Iceland have been breaking the law since 1961 for 58 years. So, uh, but we have made, we have introduced the the equal pay standard. It has become mandatory two years ago, and this is a great and very versatile tool that really helps companies. Uh, you uh, actually, uh, actually your, Iceland became the first country in the world to mandate equal pay. That, that's it. For men that, and yeah. Women. So, so that 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 was yeah, and 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 the 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 standard was introduced two years ago. And tell me this, Tatiana. You know the usual. Um, uh, points made again, the counterpoints, which is that a lot of women work part time. You're sort of you're you're not respecting the fact that some people deserve a rise or a bonus and others basically trudge along. How do you deal with those points? I'm glad you asked because (laughs) because the 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 standard does leave room for incentives and bonuses and what have you. It does. And and uh, um, it just makes sure that the, any bonus system introduced applies to everyone within the same category. So you have... No, I'm not an expert in that. So, so uh, but uh, but you know that it just... It, the standard cap, uh, helps you categorize jobs in, in a workplace in a certain way so that, that, you know, certain positions are at the same level. And then you know, and then you, I guess you account for the, the years of work experience, education, uh, whether people have you know, are, are uh, people managers and, and so on. So it's not like you know, one is one salary for everyone. Yeah, it just has to be transparent. It applies to companies with a staff of over twenty-five. Yeah, people. The law does. Yeah. To yes, prove that so. they offer mm-hmm. both genders equal mm-hmm. pay, does this mean inspectors come in to look at the books? Or and does so, it, are yeah, they and published? so you're audited. You're audited. you're audited. There is an audit, audit, uh, auditor that that comes and and audits it. And if you uh, if you pass, you can get the little uh, uh, logo of a, a gender uh, equal equal pay logo that companies are using now. When like when they are hiring, when they advertise for jobs. 
you know, companies that have that certification, they will advertise that they're uh, certified, equal pay certified, which is nice, which sort of brings the voice of consumer into the whole discussion because now we can, like, you can choose to buy only organic products or, or fair trade and something, and you look for the logo. And I hope that... The, the, it's our hope that this will become also in companies. You don't do business with people. They don't with companies. They don't pay people equally. And companies are picking up on this. They're yes, actually supporting yes, it. Yes, actually, yes, they, yeah, yeah, they do. They do. I, I notice it more and more that you know, especially when they are hiring people. Now, before we move to Ireland and comparisons, I don't know how much you've picked up about the Irish situation, but you also have other things that are working very much in your favour, such as universal high quality childcare. Yes which makes us all faint with envy here. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. I, and I, I actually realised that, you know, you come from Iceland, you think everybody has it. Uh, that was uh, actually uh, introduced. We had a red stocking movement, I think, in 1970s, early radical feminists that were really fighting for women's rights to govern their own bodies and also fighting for childcare. And that was introduced. So, so uh 95% of children of age two and older are in daycare. So we have universal daycare because the, the uh, labor participation is high, 80% for women in Iceland. So it, it's very common, uh, just almost, it's a rule that both parents work. And so, and, the, and, this, and they can work because they have access to, to very high quality childcare in, in uh, you know, daycare, which is not expensive. That's a whole other topic, but actually one that I feel we should be discussing because actually maintaining that standard of childcare where every parent is happy to send their child along is really an achievement. It is, actually. Yes. Yeah, it um, is. In terms of, you also have shared parental leave and mm-hmm. you have a use it or lose it uh, mm-hmm. part of that mm-hmm. for fathers. Yes. Now tell us how important that is and whether, does that mean that nearly all fathers pick it up now? Yeah, so I think at its peak when it was introduced, it was 90% of fathers that were taking that. I think today it's uh, 77%. Uh, and it does work, and it, well, it helps. First of all, it's very good for fathers to be close to their kids. And and, and, and I hear from, from uh, people, from women that work at child uh, in daycare, you know, they say that they notice the difference how young fathers are communicating when they come to pick up their kids. And, and, and so, so that's a great bonus for them because they want, and most of the men want to, spend as much time with children as, as women. Do but also it, it also helps, you know, with uh, equality in the workplace because when you're hiring someone, you really, it doesn't really matter whether it's a, a, it's a young woman or a young man because both of them are likely to take uh, a leave for, to, to take care of their children. Again, so, you can yeah. probably hear the sounds of people fainting all over Ireland when you said that. <laughs> now, Tatiana, what have you learned about the gender pay gap in Ireland since you came here? You have to introduce the the legislation, really. I hope that I hope that they have given some inspiration to, to, to some people. I think that it's, I I think that it's like in Iceland actually. The the labor market is very gender segregated. I think yeah. that that you are maybe lagging behind here, if I understood correctly. Like in women, going into male dominating positions, like we have like girls go study engineering a lot. And in Iceland, and 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 are going into these positions, you know, in 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 those professions, I think that it's less here 
than 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 in Iceland. Um, Very much so. Mm. Um, the Women's Day Off, uh, which I think Iceland began in 1975. 75, or yeah, yeah. Was that hugely? instrumental in in pushing forward this program yes and so it, it's just so fascinating it, it happened in 1975 uh, and then we uh, then we walked out six times so 1975 was huge 80 90 percent of women left work not only did they leave work like jobs but they they left homes because home is their working place they were not working and then men had to leave work to go and take care of kids and went out on the streets and that was great that was just huge the whole the society paralyzed completely there was a strike then in 1985 people walked out and then again 2005 i wasn't that one uh, because i wasn't there 85 2010 2016 and last year we, we walked out as well and so we have we calculate uh we have like a, uh, the the gender pay gap analysis from the uh, National uh, Statistics Institute, what do you call it? And we calculated what time of day have we finished our work if men work from eight to four for certain salary. So last year it was, uh, I think, five minutes to three. I think we earned like, I think, 17 minutes in in. in so five 13 minutes to years. three to four o'clock. Yeah. You, that, that's the women were yeah, working yeah, for free. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and we encouraged women to walk out. Last year, also, what we were striking, what we were protesting, not only income inequality, but also uh, sexual harassment and and gender-based violence in the workplace, which Me Too movement has shown us is a serious problem in Iceland. So, is, is it worse than elsewhere, Tatiana? Are the men all getting their own back? No, for, for I, 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 think I think it's. No, I think it's just. Everywhere, uh, yes. unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Um, we're not we're not doing too badly here, Tatiana. I mean, we're we're the World Economic Forum puts us in the top ten uh, globally for yeah. the gender pay gap, and we're at seventy one point three in the gender equality index. But what do you think we should do to bring it up? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I. I don't want to sound like, you know, introducing like the Icelandic model will solve everything. I think every society has. It's all challenges and, 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 and good things about it. And I think that women just have to, you know, well, not only women, men, I mean, people just have to be empowered to to, to find their own ways, looking at examples elsewhere and adopting them. And so uh, I so I, I, I spoke today as, as head of this oldest uh, feminist organization in Iceland. I think that grassroots organizations and supporting grassroots organizations is so important because they are the drivers for change. The change will not come from top down. It will come when you when you when you really have strong democratic uh, grassroots organizations, especially in this day and age when the you know the populism, illiberalism, racism, and sexism is on the rise everywhere in the world, just absolutely everywhere. So so I think that. This is the best thing that um, any government should do, actually, to fund and support grassroots organizations and, and, and get the ideas from them and get the guidance and uh, from them how to, you know, implement rules and regulations. I'm not a lawyer, you know, they're, they're lawyers doing, doing the laws, but I think what we can do is lobby for that and, and, and uh, point out the things that are maybe not obvious. It's like, you know, 
women in, in Iceland, I mean, the organization that I'm in, it was 112 years old, you know, and in 1907, there were no foreign women there, you know, and, and, and today the situation is different. So we also have to allow and, and give room to, to, to diverse groups of people and the, and, and the representation is so important is there because this is how we, how we learn. And involving men and involving, and, involving and, men, and we yes. always have women as well who just think everything was just fine. Yeah. Back in. You know, gender doesn't have anything to do whether you're a feminist or not. You know, my husband is a feminist. You know, I think that the parental leave and the, the men are just happy about it. You know, when it started, everybody was, you know, there were jokes being made. So what are you going to do? Are you going to improve your, you know, what do you call it when you play golf? You know, are you going to play golf? Or are you going to, you know, redo your bathroom and everything? You never hear these jokes anymore. Really? Yeah, you don't hear them. It's young men are just, you know, taking care of their kids. So because they had no like idea, that. actually, that taking care of kids is actually a full-time job. Yeah, now, now they know, you know. <laughs> now, now, now they know. And and um, I think, you know, fundamentally, everybody wants to live in equal society if they brought that way. This is why I also think the gender uh, equality or equality education in school is so important as well. And this is what we are fighting for in Iceland, to have it like mandatory. And Tatiana, there's something else going on, isn't there? There, there you, do, you still have strong unions. Yes, we do have strong, strong labour unions. And, and um, almost everyone in Iceland belongs to, to a labor union. And and uh, labor unions have been also instrumental in organizing the, the strikes that we had uh, at least from 2005. So they have been leading with, uh, to, together with us in grassroots organizations. So because labor unions are also grassroots. You know, yes. and, they're, and they're going back in recent years, especially after the crisis that we have, they're going more back to, to their roots, to why they're really there. And interestingly, uh, some of the biggest unions in Iceland now are led by uh, women. So. I'm going to finish by asking you the question that actually does fascinate us, is which is, what is it that, make, that has made Iceland such a, a totem of equality? And, and, and has kept you there for all these years. It's a tiny population. You've had terrible financial bother like ourselves, yeah. but you chose to treat it differently. <laughs> and yet you've maintained this extraordinary level of equality and this drive towards it. What maintains that? I think there are several factors. I think that is, is this, this strong grassroots organisations and, and uh, not, not only on the gender issues, but, but for human rights. I think that, that that is what that have driven the, the you know, the, the, the whole uh, progress, I, I would think. That, and, and um, well, for me, it's my family. You know, I've never thought about going, going anywhere else. And Iceland is really a nice place to live. It's small. Very expensive. It's, 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 yeah, but... Do you find yes. Ireland cheap? I haven't shopped any, so, so I don't know. <laughs> I haven't had a chance. I was but hoping I you'd say yes, yeah, because yes, you'd be the first person yeah. who ever Well, Icelanders here. come to, uh, to uh, spend their weekends in, in Dublin, so, so I think people like it. I think that we have a lot in common. But I think that, yeah, I, th- I, th- I don't know, Iceland, they wonder. I think that they were also very, coming from, you know, the Balkans, I think that people are very, uh, in Iceland, very open 
well, they, they would say they're private, they're close, but they're not afraid to criticize each other and and sort of self self-awareness self-awareness self-search you know uh, search for what what has gone wrong what has not gone wrong and that's this level of honesty i think it's very important and this is what what i admire about iceland that might just be the key to everything i guess so yeah. self-awareness yes. and the willingness Self- to search your, your own self search you know what did we do wrong you know not that we learn a lot about it and everything about it but at least it's out there you know it's it, How long are you staying, Tatiana? Is it leaving tomorrow? You're leaving tomorrow. Well, look, I think you probably are wonderfully inspirational <laughs> down there, and we will ho- certainly hope to see you here again uh, when we get our own um, <laughs> sh- ship moving <laughs> with yeah. regard to gender equality. Um, and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Next, Roisin will be chatting to Megan Phelps Roper, who grew up as a member of the most hated family in America. Megan was born into the Westboro Baptist Church, which has become somewhat of an international phenomenon, known for their extremist views and inflammatory hate speech. Their protests at 9-11 memorial services and at soldiers' funerals have been widely condemned across the world. They target gays, Jews, Catholics, Muslims and pretty much anyone else they believe is a sinner. At the tender age of five, Megan attended her first anti-gay protest and remained a devoted member of the church before her dramatic departure alongside her sister Grace in 2012. But what led to her change in thinking? Well, in her incredible new book, Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church, Megan lifts the lid on the inner workings of the church, the love she still holds for her estranged family and how life has been since choosing to give up hate. Megan, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you start by just explaining to anybody who doesn't know about the Westboro Church what it was and what uh, they stood for? Uh, Westboro is known internationally for this public campaign of, of protesting. Um, so we would go, it started you know, locally in, our, in my hometown of Topeka, Kansas, Um, But very quickly, we started traveling across the country, um, standing on public sidewalks with signs proclaiming God's hatred for various sinners. Um, So it started about the LGBTQ community, but then very quickly it became, we started targeting other Christians and Jewish people and anyone who believed differently than we did. So um, the church would say that they stand for the word of God and against sin. But practically what that meant was that we... we, um, we thought that everybody outside of our four walls was hellbound. Okay, and you were five years of age, standing sometimes by the side of the road or outside buildings with these placards saying "God hates fags" or other types of things. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that started when I was five years old, and and it was something that I you know grew up in and believed very strongly in um, until I was in my my mid twenties. Um, and now I know your um, particular circumstances were very extreme, but I think that, uh, and they were very unusual, there's a lot more of that, what I would call brainwashing goes on in, in sort of full view that people kind of consider to be okay. Like in the in the Ireland, in the Catholic Church, we were told to believe certain things and the church was very powerful. 
for the whole country and people who stepped out of the line, like women who uh, ended up in mother and baby homes and all sorts of situations, you know, were punished. So I, I do think it, it's worth saying that uh, the Westboro uh, Church was quite um, extreme, but that there's variations of it all over the world. Do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. It's, it was one of the things that kind of surprised me when I left. I, I thought we were this kind of, you know, singular group, isolated, you know, we and and finding out almost immediately that there are so many other types of groups that and in, in some ways groups that are far more restrictive even even than, than we were. We we had access to pop culture and and you know and had relative freedom. Like we were, we went to public school. Um but but absolutely it was a it's it was amazing and you know kind of sad to realize how widespread and common um, groups like Westboro are. And tell me about your grandfather. I know he's uh, since died, but he was the founder. Because what's also interesting about your what that church was that it was a really family thing. It was founded by one guy, really, and then all all his children and grandchildren were were sort of roped in. Yeah, exactly. So my grandparents had thirteen children, um, of which my my mom was one. And so now the church is only about seventy to eighty people. Uh, and it's populated almost entirely by my grandparents' children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren. And what was he like? He was, he had, I would say, a a very traditional fire and brimstone type preacher, Um, and and obviously had these very strong views that he was absolutely certain were correct. He said something like, he would would say things like, uh, there's something liberating about being 100% right, (laughs) and he really believed it. Like the, and, and for him, it really was this, his understanding of the Bible was the truth of God. And there was no, you know, there just was no hesitation, no, um, no second guessing. Um, but he was also a, a loving grandfather. Um, he was very sweet. He always, we would, you know, um, you know, kiss each other's cheeks and, and give hugs when we came and when we left, I helped him with his IT issues. Like he had <laughs> my phone number t- taped to his, so he, he didn't know a lot about computers. And so anytime he would you know, have an errant click, you know, I would yeah. have to run across the block to, I mean, so he, he, he could be very, very sweet and loving. Um, and, but also this, he just had this certainty, um, that he was right. And that the world had to bend to his understanding of the Bible. But he, he had been involved in the civil rights movement. So he had kind of done a lot of good before he, he went on this track. He did, you know, it, that, that certainty, you know, when he was, in that, in that case, I think he was on the right side of history, as they say. Um, the work that he did for the civil rights movement, he, you know, got an award from the NAACP, um, and he he was you know, the a, a go-to person in our in our town in that part of the country um, to represent these very difficult cases that a lot of lawyers, black or white, um, couldn't take uh, or wouldn't take. Um, and for so for my grandfather, you know, that that certainty in that instance was kind of a good thing. It, it allowed him to maintain this very, you know, strong stance in support of black civil rights um, in a place where, you know, he was facing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, hostility and, and resentment for, you know, people were, were attacking my family, my, my, my younger ones of my, um, my grandfather's children um, were, would be, you know, attacked going home from school or, you know, they'd have their property, you know, people would shoot up their property and shoot their, you know, windows out of their homes, things like that. Things that later, you know, we would, you know, we would face similar, um, similar issues and, and judgments for, for around the, the anti-gay protesting. 
the first time I heard about you all was when Louis Theroux made that programme. Um, I don't know if you'd been probably famous before then, would you say? Um, the church was really well known in the U.S., but but Louis' documentaries were definitely, that was the, it made it international um, very quickly. So do you remember him coming? What age were you? I was 20. Yeah, I absolutely remember him coming. It was, uh, <laughs> was I have to put was, a disclaimer and say I quite fancy Louis through, so, you know. <laughs> he he was he was really fun. Like so, he came um, for three. It was three for a week at a time over the course of several months, and I didn't know. Like none of us really knew anything about him or his programs um, that for that first week that he came. But just when he was arriving for the second the second time, um, I went and looked up um, you know his old his old documentaries, and I had I found Louis and the Nazis, mm. um, and and watched it and realized that I was like, oh, this is his angle. It's like, oh, these poor children raised in this. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really like that because I didn't consider myself at that point. I didn't consider myself indoctrinated. I was just being told what the Bible said. And so, but I, Louis personally, like I really, really liked him um, immediately. And I kind of took the fact that I liked him. Like I, I understood that that made him more dangerous. Like he was right. insidious. <laughs> um, and so I had to, you know, keep my, keep my guard up, um, and be even more kind of zealous when we were, um, talking about things and not be lulled into a false sense of security. Did any of um, your other siblings really like him as well? Did, did he kind of? Yeah, but always with that kind of arm's length thing. I think, um, uh, my sister Becca did, but I think she was even better about kind of maintaining this wall. Um, but we, we had so much fun. Like we, we went bowling and ice in and the ice skating, roller skating, um, and jumping on the trampoline. And so it, it was, it was like, I remember being on an airplane, like fl- heading to fly to a protest and like sitting there teaching him about the Hawaiian alphabet on the, on the plane sitting next to him. Like it was all these, he just was very funny and very friendly. Um, yeah. and yeah, it was great. But at that time you were very entrenched in all that you believed, all that you'd been brainwashed to believe, I suppose. And if you ever questioned anything, you kind of got Bible verses just spoken at you. So there wasn't really any room for reflection or, or, or thought about it. It was just facts and what your grandfather said was true and that was it. Yeah. I mean, as long as, you know, for me, because of the way that I was raised, like the Bible was it, it was the capital T truth and anything that you could show me in there, like as long as it was in the Bible, um, I knew that I had to go along with it. Um, I, you know, we, my mom would quote this verse about how we have to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So even your thoughts and feelings like you, you are afraid to even think something against Westboro's doctrines. It's a, it's a terrifying, because of course God is there in your mind as well, right? So the, 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 the fear that you have of ever going against Westboro's ideas um, is so deeply entrenched that it stops you from venturing too far off the beaten path. And for a woman and for for girls particularly, what did that doctrine mean? So it's really funny because I I really didn't experience um, the restrictions as being like the only restriction that I understood for women really was um, we couldn't be preachers. And I never had an I mean, as in we couldn't stand in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Um, But we were right there on the front lines with them, with the men and boys in every other situation you know, standing on the sidewalk at these protests and talking to journalists. And in fact, you know, the, the women in the church actually tended to have much higher profiles. Um, my, my mother was the de facto spokesperson for a long time. And my aunt Margie um, was the one who primarily represented us. I mean, she, she didn't do it alone, but, you know, she represented our case at the U.S. Supreme Court and, and won. 
like they, the women, and of course I eventually, you know, took our message to social media and, and had a, a high profile there too. So a lot of the, the women actually had, I, I didn't feel restrictions so much um, because I was a woman for a very long time in the church. That's interesting. But you know the way you talked about the thoughts on, um, you know, having to put them into captivity. As a woman and a girl, what kind of thoughts were those that didn't, you know, that wouldn't have been approved of? Because you, in terms of relationships or normal teenage sort of associations that people might have, they were not allowed. Yeah, absolutely. And this, but this was something that applied to boys as well. Ah, right? okay. so it was, there, there was no, you couldn't have relationships with people outside of the church. So, you know, friendships, quote unquote, is more like, you know, having acquaintances at school, people that you, you know, you know, spend time with, but you hardly don't spend time with them outside of class. Um, and you never let them close enough to, you're never supposed to let them close enough to hurt you. And, you know, any, I, I you know, occasionally had, you know, crushes on boys, but I knew that was, you know, it was a total non-starter like, for a number of reasons, including the fact that, for instance, in high school, I would go out uh, outside of my high school during lunch and protest my high school. And, you know, <laughs> as my classmates started driving by, you know, sometimes throwing things and screeching their tires and yelling. So it's definitely I definitely had no illusions, you know, and this is a, one of the really funny lines from that very first documentary that Louis made about the church where, you know, I, we were mic'd up and we didn't realize they were still recording. <laughs> And so JL, I'm walking with my cousin JL and my sister Rebecca. We're walking away from the camera, kind of down the sidewalk a bit. And um, JL is telling us about the conversation she just had. And she says, um, they asked they asked about marriage. And I said, and what did you say? And she said, I said, are you kidding me? Who is going to marry us? And then we all crack up. <laughs> and we meant that literally. We just, I just thought, I'm never going to get married and have children because you have to marry within the church. And the church was almost entirely my family. So. Oh, and did your grandfather ever mention the difficulty of that? Like, how the hell were you going to <laughs> procreate and spread more Westboro little people? No. Well, the world was ending. The apocalypse Oh, okay, that's died. true. There so, wouldn't be a world yeah. to come into, so it's grand. Speaking of your high school, I mean, I'm just imagining being a hated, like, you know, we think of American high schools <laughs> and there's popular people, you know, and there's this set and there's the goths and there's all the different sets. Like, were, were you in a sort of league all of your own, your family, like just these weirdos? <laughs> We were, we were definitely weirdos, uh, but, but it wasn't actually as hostile as you might imagine. Even after we started, it got more hostile when we started protesting in high school. Um, but it, it really wasn't there because I started protesting before I started going to kindergarten. So there was this, I grew up with this, you know, this group of people who, uh, like it was, there's, there was this compartmentalization, you know, who I, I think people had a hard time reconciling who I was in school who we all were in school. We were raised to be very polite, good students, friendly. Like we helped other people with their homework a lot, things like that. Um, so it's hard for people to reconcile that with the people who stood out on the sidewalks yelling at people and telling them they were going to hell. But say if somebody, um, if you knew that a fellow student was gay, um, would that be something, someone you would be keeping away from or not helping? Um, well, it depended. Like, so, so there were people who, I mean, who were clearly gay, um, but who were very friendly to me and like, you know, they'd, they'd sit next to me and, and like, as long as they didn't like make a huge issue of it, like it was totally fine. Like we, <laughs> we could be friends, but there were sometimes you newer know, people who, who were really mad about what we were doing and who and who couldn't compartmentalize or who wouldn't. And then it could be an issue. Like they would, you know, try to 
say snide things during class or whatever, but we just, you know, learned to ignore them. That was, it was so common. I think what gives a really good example, because it wasn't just gays that um, you were taught to hate, it was all sorts of groups and all sorts of things that you were celebrating when other people were mourning. So for example, 9-11 happened and you were um, in your school gym and clearly everyone was shocked and appalled and saddened. But that wasn't your reaction because you're in the church. What was your reaction? It was an instinctive reaction. And, and so at Westboro, we tended, we didn't talk about our, our message in school. And so the, so it was actually a violation of our normal code, you know, for me to say this, but it was so, that's what I'm trying trying to say. It was so ingrained and so instinctive that as soon as I heard um, what had happened, I said, awesome. And of course, the girl who said, you know, who said that, she's like, it's like, no, it's not awesome. And, you know, obviously a lot of people were crying and, but that's, you know, we, why did you think it was awesome? Because it was, it was proof that, you know, God was punishing this country, uh, you know, our country, America, um, because of her great sins. You know, we had been warning people on the streets all this time. And so we saw this as the righteous anger, the wrath of God. Um, and we were supposed to thank God for everything. So all of my life, we had been celebrating death and tragedy and often mocking it. And it was just part of, part of the culture, part of, part of how I, how I understood, um, God dealt with people. What did people in your school think of your reaction? And did you kind of, did that cause you trouble? Um, I, I don't think people, I mean, they got really angry. I should say after, after, you know, September 11, that, that kind of, so in Topeka, you know, it had been about 10 years. September 11 happened about 10 years after we'd started protesting. And the very beginning of the protesting, there was a lot of counter-protesters and people would come out and be really angry. Then, of course, after a couple of years, that kind of faded away because, you know, it's hard to maintain that level of, of anger, even, even though we at Westboro were out there every day. After 9-11, it became a lot more heated again. People started you know, trying to, um, especially because we started flying the flag upside down, holding up burned American flags at those protests <laughs> and saying God hates America and thank God for September 11. It made people really angry. And that kind of violence and attacks started up again. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Twitter and going to, you kind of became the Twitter spokesperson for the church and you started a, a sort of profile there. But it's very interesting, I think, uh, Megan, how you speak about the influence of Twitter on you. Can you take us through from the beginning? Because first of all, you were there online. I mean, obviously getting loads of hate because for the same reason you got hate in real life. But how did it change and how was it so crucial in terms of you leaving the church? Um, Twitter was an incredible influence on me, um, in, in many ways. So when I joined, I was just there to spread the church's message, you know, in, with this new, in this new avenue. Um, and, but almost immediately, um, as you say, I was getting loads of hate as per usual, but then, you know, there was this, these people who rec- like who thought that some of them thought I was funny. Like they, <laughs> they, rec- they recognized that I was a human being. Like they, they had a hard time taking me seriously. Um, at first. And, um, but then they, again, they recognized that I was, that I really believed in the value of what I was doing. And so they started having real conversations with me. They were asking questions and trying to understand the nuances of Westboro's ideology. And so they're kind of, you know, gently challenging, gently challenging me over time. And during, you know, the fact that these conversations, so for instance, on the picket line, um, you know, we were only seeing people for, so even people who wanted to have a conversation, 
we were only out there for you know half an hour, 45 minutes generally. And it's just impossible to, to get to know someone in that time, to develop rapport and, and mutual understanding. And Twitter enabled exactly that for me. So I started to see sides of people that, and, to, and to become close to people in a way that I never had in real life. And so it was, it was, it was that it was, you know, the fact that the fact that those people were able to find internal inconsistencies in our doctrine, it was the fact that, you know, you know, Twitter gave me this, the first, you know, the, the fact that it was only 140 characters, I stopped using insults. My family constantly was insulting people <laughs> and there wasn't space for it on Twitter. And then there was also this realization that when I did throw in an insult, the conversation immediately went off the rails and it wasn't about this theology that I thought was important. It was now, you know, people being defensive and saying things like, you don't know me. And, and, and I didn't want to have those kinds of conversations. So I learned to stop insulting people needlessly. Um, and so it was all of these things, the community aspect of it, the argumentation aspect of it. Um, and then just the logistics of the platform that made me like the fact that this was happening on the internet in very small bites with people who were presumably far away, that I, I felt safe there in a way that I never did in physical space with other people. And it's, it just, all of these things, it was incredible what, what they did to my, how I thought and how I started to engage other people differently. It's so interesting because we do see social media in so many different ways and some of it is that cesspit of hate and horribleness. And then there is another side of it where people do end up making really um, important bonds with other people and sometimes with people like what happened with you, uh, people we completely disagree with through sort of certain kind of communication. Do you remember when, uh, is there an incident when you remember uh, communicating through Twitter and starting to doubt and wonder about all these certainties you'd held dear since you were a toddler and whether there may be uh, another sort of idea? Uh, was there a moment or was it a series of moments? It, there were there were definitely uh, it was a series of moments, um, you know, in these conversations. So, for instance, the very first internal, you know, contradiction in our doctrines that was shown to me. I remember that moment. I remember the, you know, and what was that, Megan? It was it was a conversation I was having with a Jewish man uh, about a, a sign that we had calling for the death penalty for gay people, and you know, we based that on these passages in the Book of Leviticus, and you know, so he's questioning me about it, and I, you know, when he says. Didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And I said, yes, but we're not casting stones. We're preaching words. And he, you know, gives the very obvious comeback of, or what should have been obvious, but, but I had been blind to. He says, yeah, but you're advocating that the government cast stones. And also, didn't this member of your church, your mother, have a child out of wedlock? And isn't that another sin that deserves the death penalty? Um, and it, it, that was the first time I realized, like, oh, my God. First, yes, Jesus is talking about the death penalty in that passage where he says only the sinless should cast stones. And second, if my mother had been subject to that punishment, my family would not exist. It's, it was, she had been given the opportunity to, to repent and be forgiven. And like that is a major foundation of Christian theology. So why were we advocating for the death penalty in spite of those two you know, and, and in that moment, I just, I remember having this like, <gasps> like gasping, like, like, how can this be? Cause like, again, coming from a family of lawyers and, and people who had been studying and defending these ideas for all this time, I had never had the experience of 
being bested, like of, of somebody finding a logical flaw. And so it was just the first time I, I could recognize that the church could be wrong. I had always basically assumed that we had a monopoly on truth. And it was the first thing I saw otherwise. So it feels like it was almost like a thread unraveling and, you know, you couldn't stop it. It was going to un, unspool um, in front of your eyes. I can't imagine what that must be like to believe so many things that are true and and right. And then to have that shaken. Did it happen very quickly? How long was it? Are we talking, talking months Um it was about a year and a half, yeah, before it finally, from the moment of that first contradiction to the moment I thought, like, oh my God, what if we're just people? What if, what if this isn't the place led by God himself? And, you know, that, it was this piling up. I, you, I I'll often use that um, analogy you just used, like a thread unraveling, because yeah, it, it was absolutely terrifying, you know, to, to from that moment to be constantly be, having these moments of cognitive dissonance where, for instance, you know, when something terrible would happen, like, you know, that terrorist attack in Norway when all of those children were murdered, um, you know, my, my family is watching, um, is watching those events and celebrating and becoming more and more gleeful as the body count rises. And at the same time, I'm watching the way people are responding on Twitter, and I am identifying far more with what's happening on Twitter than I am in my, in, with my, within my family, within the church. And moments like that continued to happen. And it was so jarring because at that, until I had the moment of what if we're just people, I assumed that the problem was with me. Like I was becoming too humanistic, too empathetic to these people that God clearly hated and that God was cursing. So you came to a point where you had to leave, Megan. And it's interesting that people might be surprised it wasn't difficult to leave because actually they didn't want non-believers there, really. They only wanted people who were fully signed up. And as soon mm -hmm. as you started to sort of be someone who wasn't like that, they wouldn't, you know, they would happily get, get rid of you. But this is your family you're leaving. So mm -hmm. the, what was yeah. the, what was that like? Because you knew you had to leave, but I presume very, very painful. And you write about that well in your book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that process, you know, there, there was four months from, you know, before I left where I was actively considering leaving and knowing that, you know, I couldn't, I, that all of these things were going to be gone. Like, think about how entrenched you are in your family and what you go to your family for. They were my everything, you know, and, and knowing that by leaving, they were going to completely cut, cut me out of their lives forever. I would no longer have access to you know, family memories and photo albums and recipes and just all of the, you know, these the small things that make our lives. And that I was going to be leaving this beloved family with whom I did everything um, and going out into a world that had every reason to despise me for the years that I had spent antagonizing them and celebrating their tragedies. Um, it was absolutely devastating. And you went with your sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were that, was that first moments like? And I suppose coming up to why you wanted to write your book and tell your story as well. I mean, we could cutting it down into a short time, but how soon did it take before you could enjoy yourself, I suppose, and feel, you know, happy because you'd left all those bonds behind? It, it was surprising. I mean, there, there, there was a, at the beginning, obviously the, the, the balance between grief and, and joy was heavily weighted toward, toward grief and mourning. But even close to the beginning, like you have to live, you know. So um, being with, we, we eventually at the very beginning lived with um, a cousin of mine for a few weeks who had also left the church a few years earlier. And she's just, you know, 
perfect for comic relief. Like it's a very funny person <laughs> and finding all of the, you know, the irony in our situation. And, and so that was helpful. Um, but also I, I was really surprised by the amount of relief I felt after I left the church. I had expected, I think, to feel only this chasm of loss. And it was there, absolutely. Um, but there was also relief at not having to go out and judge and condemn other people. Like, I don't think people realize what a, or maybe they do, I didn't, what a weight it was to have to be constantly looking at other people and judging them and mm-hmm. keeping them at arm's length. And, and it, was, it was amazing to give up those judgments and to try to meet people where they were. And I, I just felt like a privilege. Um, so there, there was, there was good even at the beginning. And that just grew over time as I continued to meet people and develop new relationships and, and friendships and to find, you know, a, a better perspective on the world. And you haven't spoken to your parents since that time. I reach out to them frequently. Like I, I, I try to, because, you know, I know that I was changed by the kind of gentle persuasion um, and compassion of outsiders. And so I, I felt like after I left, that was something that I needed to try to do for my family too, to try to change their minds. Um, and it has resulted in some moderation of their position. And even recently, since the book came out, um, I had one of you know Denny's one of these um, very rare conversations. So Westbury likes to pretend like ex-members don't exist. Mm. Um, but when we do something that gets attention, they feel like they have to respond. And so I actually recently on Twitter got a, a message from one of my uncles acknowledging that some of what we had done, and, this, and he of course like says it in this way that kind of is a disclaim, you know, disclaimer against responsibility, but acknowledges that some of what we did was was wrong and. For me, that's a huge, it's, it's huge uh, and very important to keep reaching out to them, both for their own sake, but also for the sake of all of the people that they target. Because the more moderate their position becomes, the less, um, the less hurtful it is to other people. Tell me about your life now. You've written this book and you married uh, a man you met on Twitter. Funnily enough, you've, I, a lo- you've a lot to thank that social <laughs> platform for. I do. Your man Jack up on his mountain meditating, you can thank him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I met my husband on Twitter. Uh, I actually um, saw, I met him for the first time a few months after I left, and we went on our first date a couple months after that, and we've been together ever since. We got uh, we got married three years ago, and now we have a little girl who's 13 months old, and, and just this incredible, and again, I was never, I thought I was never going to get married or have children, and so it's it's an amazing um turnarounds. Like I, I also joke about how I still get excited to go to the grocery store without permission. <laughs> um, but that's like, that was such a, and I guess, you know, you, you talked about the restrictions on women. This was something that I didn't realize for a long time that, um, you know, women, girls were, were kept on a tighter leash, at least in my family, um, than boys. Like my, I wasn't allowed to, you know, get a job outside of, the family law firm, um, and my, my brothers all were like kept out late at night and, and things like that. And, you know, they, they did it with all good intentions. You know, they were trying to protect us from, from people who might hurt us, but women, you know, were, were seen as being, uh, more easily deceived than mm. men. Uh, and, and Eve was the one of course, who, who sinned in the garden. Of course. So, yeah. We're, <clears throat> we're to blame for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you have a little girl now and it must be fascinating looking at her developing. She's only 13 months, but to see the life that you're going to give her versus the kind of very closed um, 
life that you had, which you can see in hindsight now. But you don't sound bitter to me, like, you know, the way you appreciate sort of almost seeing things anew, being given a new chance at life in a way and and appreciating it so much more than maybe other people who've, who've always been um, exposed to everything do. So I'm really interested in yourself as a parent and watching your daughter grow and how that's feeling at the moment. It is head spinning, realizing how different her life is going to be from mine. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I think about all the time. Like, how how do I, because her life is going to be so different, because she is not being raised to be a good member of Westboro Baptist Church, she's not being raised to, you know, move into the house next door to me. Like, she is going to grow up and she will have to, you know, be her own person and stand on her own two feet at a much younger age than than I had to. And, and so how to develop, like, I don't have a model for that. So this was something that I started thinking about even before before I was pregnant, before I was even you know considering I mean having children, and I thought I would I hoped I would eventually, but I started reading parenting books because it's you really have to have a completely different paradigm from the one that I was raised with, and so it's I, I think about it a lot, and I, I have obviously high high hopes for her as I'm, I'm sure my mother had for me. Do you ever find yourself slipping back into things? Because I mean it's a big you know people say show me the girl at seven and I'll show you the woman or show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man. Is there any part of you that sometimes finds yourself saying things and having to stop yourself? Um, not really. I mean, not, not at this point. Like there was, it was a process of kind of unlearning the things that I knew and, and finding new ways. Very occasionally, it, it, I mean, occasionally it does, it does still come up. It's not on things like, you know, some anti-gay thought or something mm. like that, but but more some assumption about people or right. the right way to talk to people. Mm. You know, um, I th- I worry, and I, I so for instance, you know, a couple of years ago, I was with a friend, and she had a daughter, and and the daughter was kind of misbehaving in public, and I was like shocked that the mother wasn't freaking out at her, <laughs> and that really scared me. So this is that was the actually what sparked the I really need to start reading parenting <laughs> books. I'm like, I need a new a new model for, you know, this, that authoritarian parenting. And occasionally I, 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 with my daughter, like she's just at this age where she's starting to like express her will. <laughs> and I am like, I, I am trying very hard every time I feel some sense of resistance to that, <laughs> like to, to see it as a, and, and I do think of it as a very good thing. Like I want her to maintain that. I want her to know her own self and her own mind mm. and to not try to replace that with mine. So, Do you think you'll ever have a relationship with your parents again? I hope that I will. And, you know, maybe that's a, it might be, seem like a, you know, far-fetched hope, but, you know, it was also extremely far-fetched, far-fetched that I would ever leave the church. You know, that was, I had dedicated my whole life to it. I, I knew that it was right. And yet, People helped me find a better way, and I, I really hope that that they will be able to as well. And whether that's the result of arguments that I make, or the you know other experiences that they have, or other people reaching out to them, I I, I do believe and I, I do hope that they can be reached. Because you have a very loving dedication to them in the, in the book, and I'm I'm curious about that because I did mention you not sounding bitter or resentful for 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 them to essentially hijacking your childhood and your young womanhood. Yeah. How have you? Well, and, where well, is, is they, the anger? Was the anger there? The hate there, or did it? No, I mean, almost immediately after I left, um, I, I I was thinking about this. Like, where? Who is to blame for all this? Mm. You know, and 
And the answer is, I, I think the blame lies with bad ideas. I know that my mother, and I don't know if you've seen the third um, documentary now that Louis has made, Louis Theroux has made no, about Westboro. Yeah, it just came out a few months ago. And um, like you, you, there's a scene with my mother, there's a couple that are really, they, they were very hard to watch and very sad. Um, but, you know, she, with all good intention, I know, and with so much love for my siblings and me, she did the things that she did. I, as difficult as my mother could be sometimes, I never doubted that her love for me and that she was doing the very best that she could with everything that she had. And, you know, she says that in the documentary and there, I, I believe every word of it. And that is what I think what stops me from being bitter. Like if, if I thought that she had done something deliberately, you know, wrong that she knew was wrong, you know, maybe I would, I, I would be more upset, but I know that my mother was living the life and teaching me exactly what had been that, what the same messages that she had been indoctrinated with as a child. So I, I, I love my mother dearly. And, you know, I, some people, sometimes people will ask if I forgive her and I, I just don't think about it in terms of forgiveness because again, I know, I know that she loves me and I know that, that she did everything she did um, because of that love for me. Well, what are your hopes now and what are you doing with your life and what do you want to do with your life? Um, I, I feel like this, so there was a thing I learned about shortly after I left Westboro. Um, I was talking to, you know, one of the, that, the Jewish man who made that very, that very first point, Julicious, his name was David Abbottball. Um, and he taught me this concept from Judaism called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And, you know, the way he explained it was that it's, it is incumbent upon every human being to see the brokenness in the world and to do everything that they, everything that they can to repair it. And that immediately resonated with me. And especially because he said, you know, you and your family have added to that brokenness and, and you have a duty to, to do what you can, um, to make change, to make amends. And so that's, that's kind of what, what I've been doing since I left. I, I, you know, connecting with people in these groups that I used to target when I was at the church and working on, you know, anti-bullying programs and, with civil rights groups and, um, you know, with law enforcement organizations who are working on questions of, um, you know, counterterrorism and hate crimes and de-radicalization and extremism. And so, I mean, I, w I could not have, you know, when I left the church, I could not have had any idea what was coming after I left. All of those things were completely unexpected and kind of unbelievable. So I just want to keep using every opportunity, every opportunity I have to try to do good in the world. Say that word again, that Jewish phrase. Um, tikkun olam, which yeah. means to repair the world. That's lovely. I'm just wondering as you're speaking there, what your family think of Trump, what you think of Trump. Oh, Trump is, I, it's extremely frustrating, obviously, watching, you know, he, he has a way of, obviously a lot of the things that he does hurt so many people. And the way that he speaks uh, you just, it, there is, it makes it almost impossible. It's very much like Westboro in that they, the way that they talk at people and, and the, the, the language that they use makes it almost impossible to have a conversation because, you know, first of all, because they don't, they, they take all the air out of the room, but, and, but second, because they won't let anybody, any other alternative view in, into the room. And, and it's just, it's incredibly painful to watch the Westboroization of politics, as I saw someone put it. Mm. And it's, it's devastating. You know, I, I gave a Ted talk in, in 2017, trying to combat some of that, like tr by encouraging people to reach out to people across these, 
you know, vast ideological divides that have been, you know, um, developing over the past several years. And I just, you know, I can't, I can't wait for us to find a way through and around this and to start making things better. Well, I think with your book, which is called Unfollow, which I would recommend to everyone, I think you're definitely following that um, repair, the broken things in the world. And I I think it's actually going to have a lot of um, impact on people you'll probably never hear about, you know, just because I think even though your tale is quite specific to do with your family, it brings up a lot of universal things about people feeling stuck in various different situations um, and that there is a way out and that you can change your mind. And the gentle way that you were helped to change your mind is also a huge lesson as well, I think. So thank you very much for writing it. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm so, so, so glad that, that people are finding value in it and that it is doing some of that repair work. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Tatiana Latinovic and Megan Phelps-Roper. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.